get in. This last tune. Oh. Are we changing? No, that's great. No. I'm sorry, we're doing We Will Feast in the House of Oh, okay, sorry, sorry, sorry. Sandra's tune. Your buddy Sandra. Or Nicholson or whatever his name is. What's this for? Tim. 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 Yeah, he's a cool guy. Oh, wait. Nice. Oh, these are slides. Oh, uh, Preston, could you click her past the sermon? Let him click you past. Okay. <laughs> Neil's got a lot of fun He's got stuff a lot of stuff. Um, but yeah, click all the way. We will say together we will feast and we God, there are so many things that we have been presented this morning. Words, songs, thoughts. And yet, in our hearts, in my heart, I feel the tension between the truths that I hear. God, bones are breaking and flesh is failing. Um, We experience that individually. We've experienced that um, corporately. And we know that things like viruses and cancer and broken families and death um, will one day be wiped out. And so we have to hold those things in tension. God, give us the grace to understand that. I I think about the change of season as parents and teachers and kids are getting ready for school and what that means even for the life of our church as new programs are starting and old ones are closing, God, I just want us to think about not just doing programs, but really engaging you. So God, as we think about where we are going to plug in, whether journey groups or community groups or teaching Sunday schools or just being here committed on Sunday mornings, I pray that it wouldn't just be a box we check, but a way to really, truly engage you. And we pray for um, families, for marriages, for parents. God, pray for your grace upon those. And I do pray that as we continue to worship this morning, that we would find you and that we would know your truth in a way that would change us, even these few months. And we'll start in verse one, skip down a little bit after we read these first six verses. If you haven't been with us, we've been going through the gospel of John. and We'll connect this back to where we were last week here in just a second, but let's read together. John chapter 14. Starting in verse 1. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself. That where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Let's get down to verse 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him. For he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. And that day you will know that I am in my Father and you in me and I in you. 
Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And who, he who loves me will be loved by the Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words, and the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. This is the word of the Lord. If you uh, can think back mentally to John 13 for a second, we have to connect these two chapters or we'll never understand what's happening here. If you remember in John 13, the disciples are celebrating the Passover, what became to known as the Lord's Supper. Jesus has washed their feet and now he's gone back to the table with them after dinner and he kind of drops these three pieces of heavy news on them. First he says, hey, one of you sitting around this table right now is gonna betray me. And you hear that right now and you go, yeah, Judas, like we all know. And we think the disciples had the same reaction, like Jesus, like he's sitting right there. Like you might as well say his name. But the reality is they had no idea who was gonna betray Jesus, no clue. Matthew tells us in the same scene that Jesus says somebody's gonna betray him. And the response of everyone at the table is, is it me? Is it gonna be me turn my back on Jesus? Am I gonna be the one? And so they start to build up fear and anxiety. And then Jesus says to them, there's more. I'm about to leave you and where I'm going, you can't come with me. So you think about this, these 12 disciples, they've been with Jesus every step of the way, following him wherever he goes, uh, living with him, camping with him, laughing with him, eating with him, seeking his guidance and direction and learning from him always. He says, hey, I'm about to leave after all these years and now you can't come with me. To which Peter says, okay, Jesus, tell me this. Is it a question of commitment? Because I am with you. Like, I don't care how hard it's about to get. I don't care what road you're about to walk down. I know you're trying to be super vague right now, but I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus says to him, of course, Peter, before this night is even over, you're gonna be pretending like you've never even heard my name. And again, we know this about Peter. So we aren't shocked by that news right now, but you have to go to the disciples and realize this is a inner circle guy. This is a part of the the leadership of the group, a guy they looked up to and respected. They knew Peter was a little brash, a little uh, hot off the handle, but turning his back on Jesus, they never expected it. And so they're thinking, if Peter's gonna turn his back on Jesus, what in the world am I gonna do? If he doesn't make it to the end, how am I gonna make it to the end? And so their fear and anxiety and distress, you can feel it in this moment. And that's what leads us into John chapter 14. It's one flowing account of one night and Jesus opens and says, don't let your hearts be troubled. Because he can tell what's happening in the room in their hearts. He can sense the fear and the anxiety and the stress and everything that they're feeling. And so what he does all throughout this chapter, the rest of John 14, here's how you can look at it. It's Jesus giving his disciples these gifts, these things that they're gonna need when he's gone to make it to the end. These things that they don't even realize they might need, but are gonna be crucial if they're gonna make it in his absence. So many great stories of adventure have these moments. Uh, I don't know how many of you have read or seen Lord of the Rings, 
I'm losing many of you right now. I know this, but just stick with me. I think you can get the point. In Lord of the Rings, like the Fellowship of the Ring, they're going to destroy the one true ring at Mordor. Just catch you back up. And so the Fellowship of the Ring is about to leave. And it's like a couple of small hobbits and one strong guy and a dwarf. And it's like, what is happening right now? And they are about to leave. And Galadriel gives them these gifts. Each one of them get a gift for the journey. So they get a rope or a dagger or a light. And they're kind of looking at them like, okay, uh, what are we supposed to do with this? But they don't realize what she realizes, which is this. You might not understand these gifts, but they're going to be desperately crucial for you on the journey. You're going to need them along the way. When you get in tough spots, when fear comes up, when an enemy is before you, you're going to need these gifts. And Jesus does the same thing for us. And so these gifts for these disciples are also gifts for you. That you might walk into this room this morning and who knows what's before you. You might be a little fearful, a little anxious. The path set out before you might be a little unclear. You might be wondering, how are you going to make it and stay faithful to Jesus? Maybe you're a little discouraged or disconnected from Jesus right now. Maybe you're feeling a little apathetic and you're thinking, how am I going to wake myself up out of this and start faithfully following Jesus again? Or maybe you want to faithfully follow Jesus. You're thinking, I'm just inadequate for the task. Like I don't have what it takes. These three gifts that Jesus gives to us in John 14 are for you to help you on the journey if you're going to make it to the end. So here's what we see. Three gifts that we want to walk through in this chapter. We see a place a path and his presence, a place, a path and his presence. Gift number one is a place. Look back at verse one. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. So Jesus says, the first thing you're gonna need in life The first thing you're going to need when you're fearful and anxious and you're wondering how you're going to make it, the first thing you're going to need when you need spiritual power is this knowledge that I go to prepare a place for you. That I'm not just leaving you on your own right now. I'm going for a very specific purpose. There are many rooms in my father's house and one of them has your name on it and I'm getting, getting it ready for you so that you can come and be with me. He says that knowledge is what you need to make it. And it makes sense if you think about it. Home is a powerful place. I don't, I don't know, I know some of you didn't grow up in great homes and, and things like that, but even you think about your home right now, your home is a place of comfort, a place of safety, a place you can be yourself, where you can let your hair down, where you don't have to pretend. You know, you have that moment, or I do at least, some of you might think this is crazy. You get to like the end of even an awesome vacation and you're like on the last day and for some reason you're like, this has been great, but I just wanna go home. Like, I just want to get back and be at my house. Home is a powerful place. You've seen this in the Olympics. You know, it's terrible. There's no fans. I hate that. That just takes away so much of the drama. I love fans being in sporting events. But one of the cool things that's happened in the Olympics, like I was watching Caleb Dressel swim the other night. And uh, I don't know how many of you saw this, but he, he swam. And I thought it was like his first gold medal. He'd won like 10 or something, but he like swam the hundred free and he like won. And there's like this cool moment where he wins and he's like basking in the glory. He wins the Olympic medal or whatever, but then they're interviewing him. And they're like, hey, do you wanna watch your family watch you win the gold medal? And so they like show him. And like, this guy is like massive, okay? He's like 
200 pounds. He's got like a full arm sleeve tattoo. So they show him his family watching him win. And then they're like, hey, do you want to see your family at home? And they put him on the screen and this like massive mountain gold medal winning swimmer just breaks down in tears. Because there's something in him that even on the mountaintop, even in this pinnacle moment of winning a gold medal, he wants to be home with his family to celebrate. Home is a powerful thing. You know, psychologists tell us that uh, homelessness has profound impact uh, on people's lives who, who grow up homeless, not just physically, but also mentally, that kids who grow up without a home aren't able to, um, aren't able to connect as easily, have higher levels of anxiety. They experience all these different things, social isolation, because home is a place where you're accepted, where you're safe where you're loved, where you belong, where you can always come, where you don't have to pretend. And when we miss that reality, when we don't have that place, it has an impact on us. And so Jesus gives them this gift for their journey that I'm going to prepare a place for you. But the question is this, how does this help you now? It's a nice thought, right? But how does it help you right now? And the answer is, it doesn't help you right now unless you cultivate in your heart a sense of homesickness. Unless you figure out a way to set your mind on the place that Jesus has gone to prepare for you and figure out a way to not think so much about this world, but think about the home that he has for you. I think this is hard for us as American Christians because we live in one of the most wealthy, comfortable, safe countries in the history of the world. And so it's not easy for us to think, oh, there's a better place apart from distress and apart from pain and apart from uh, where I don't have to worry about money because most of us are comfortable and we don't have to feel this. I saw a pastor recently say, uh, all American Christians have chosen um, heaven over hell, but not many American Christians have chosen heaven over earth. That we think when it comes right down to it, it's kind of nice here. And so we don't set our minds on the things to come, but the only way this gift works is if we set our minds on that citizenship that we have in a far better country. A great example of this is a man named Richard Baxter, who's a 17th century writer, Puritan, theologian. When he was 31 years old, he had all these chronic illnesses. Um, he had like swollen feet and toothaches and headaches and just like all this stuff. And when he was 31, doctors told him he had days, weeks, maybe to live. And so he decided, for how many ever days I have left to live, I'm going to spend 30 minutes a day meditating on heaven, just thinking about heaven. Here's the problem. He lived 50 more years, but he maintained that practice every day for the rest of his life because he saw the profound perspective and joy that he got from thinking about heaven and how that changed his heart and the way that he lived. He couldn't let that practice go. He developed this homesickness in himself that he was unable to let go of or revolutionized his life. And so we have to use this gift to cultivate homesickness for heaven. Listen to this quote from Randy Alcorn. Nothing is more misdiagnosed than our homesickness for heaven. We think what we want is sex, drugs, alcohol, a new job, a raise, a doctorate, a spouse, a large screen TV, a car, a cabin in the woods, or a condo in Hawaii. What we really want is the person we were made for, Jesus and the place we were made for, heaven. 
Nothing less can satisfy us. And so, listen, I know if I challenge you to spend 30 minutes a day thinking about heaven, none, most of us are not gonna do that. Maybe all of you. But what if you just take five? Have you ever spent five minutes thinking about heaven? Have you ever spent five minutes thinking this life is a mist and Jesus right now is preparing a place that's free from pain and sickness and death and temptation and all of that. And that's where I'm spending eternity. What if you spent five minutes there? What kind of impact might that have in your soul if you could develop a homesickness for heaven? Jesus says it's crucial to have this if you're gonna make it on the journey. Let me just show you three very quick things this will do for you. If you focus on heaven, meditate there, set your heart on things to come. Life becomes a dress rehearsal. Life becomes a dress rehearsal. What I mean by that is this. Uh, J.C. Ryle in his book on holiness talks about how heaven is a holy place. And if we don't live holy lives now, if we don't want righteousness now, if we don't wanna kill sin now, we're gonna get to heaven and not know what to do with ourselves. Because heaven is a holy place full of holy people who like righteous things and love God and love Jesus. And so if we set our minds on that's where we're headed, free from the presence of sin, perfectly holy, we begin to treat life as a dress rehearsal. To go, I wanna live far more holy right now. I wanna get far more serious about killing sin and developing righteousness in my life as a dress rehearsal for this great eternal destination that I have, meditating on heaven can get us there. Secondly, the pain of life comes into perspective. The pain of life comes into perspective. Paul says in Romans 8.18, the sufferings of this present age are not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed to us. I like to think about Paul like sitting down to make a pros and cons list. I really like pros and cons list. And he like sits down and he's like, all right, the pains of life of which Paul knew a lot, okay? glories of heaven. And then he's like, what? He's like, why am I even doing this? Like the list far outweighs. It's not even worth comparing. It's not even worth deciding. Is the pain of life worth the glories that are to come in heaven? It's not even a comparison worth making. How does Paul get there? How does he get to that place? How can you get to that place where you think the glories of heaven are far better than the pain of life? Here's how. We have to meditate on heaven. We have to think often about the place that Jesus has prepared for us and it creates a homesickness in our soul for wanting to be there. And lastly, heaven, heavenly mindedness will bring earthly usefulness. I don't know if you've ever heard the phrase, don't be so heavenly minded that you're of no earthly good. Like a pithy little statement. And like the point is this, if you think too much about heaven, you get disconnected from the earth and you're like, you don't care about people. You just think about heaven all the time. And there's just really one problem with that statement. Every person who's ever lived who is extremely heavenly minded was like the most earthly useful person who's ever existed. Because here's what starts to happen. You start to realize, I don't need this world to satisfy me. My hope doesn't lie in getting all that I need and all that I want right now, right here. All of that's waiting for me. And so this life becomes a life where you can give yourself away freely where you can become useful because you're so heavenly minded that you don't hold strongly to this world. So Jesus gives us this first gift, a place, a home that he goes to prepare for us. Gift number two, he gives us a path. He gives us a path. Verse four, and you know the way to where I'm going. Thomas said to him, Lord, 
we do not know the way to where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So remember, Jesus says he's going away, but then he says to his disciples, you don't have to worry about it because you know the way to get there. And maybe you could tell by the way I read it, I sense Thomas is like so frustrated. Like, okay, Jesus, we're gonna say it one more time. We do not know what's going on. Like we literally don't know what's happening. You're leaving, you're talking about going to be with your father and we know the way to get there. We're confused. Like we don't know. And then they say, tell us the way. And what we would expect, because every religious founder in the history of the world, every major religion works this way, is we expect a set of instructions. We expect a list. We expect a path to follow. We expect Jesus to say, well, guys, you've seen my life for three years. You've seen how I live. Just mimic me and you'll get there. Every religion works this way. Hinduism, salvation comes through the way of works, the way of knowledge, or the way of devotion. Buddhism, salvation comes through the eightfold path to enlightenment. Islam, salvation comes through strict obedience to the five pillars. And Jesus said, says something here that sets him apart. When he has this opportunity to give this strict set of instructions, he says, all right, guys, focus. Here's the way. It's me. I am the path. I am the way, the truth, and the life. So don't miss it. When he says to them in verse four, you know the way. He's not like misunderstanding their knowledge. He's saying, you know the way because you know me. I'm the way. Every other religion, every other way of life, every other path says, here's the way that you have to follow to go and find God. And Christianity says, God has come to find you. God has come to live with you. And he's going to prepare a place for you. And he is the way to get there. It reminds me of uh, when you ask someone for like directions somewhere. We still use that terminology directions, you know, but there's really two kinds of people. The first kind of person when you ask for directions says, yeah, yeah, yeah. First, what you're gonna wanna do is take a left on East North Street and then go right on. And you're like, I'm mentally checked out, like immediately. I don't even, I don't want any of this. I can't remember this. Like, I don't know what you expect from me right now. There's like extra level of that person who's like, um, yeah, you just take a left where the Kmart used to be. Like, what am I supposed to do with that information right now? And then, you know, that little white house where, where Bill grew up, take a right there, you'll be there in no time. And it's like, this is the most unhelpful thing that's ever happened in the history of the world. You realize that, right? And there's a separate kind of person that's like, hey, just give me your phone, I'll type in the address. And you're like, thank you, thank you. What we would expect from Jesus is a set of instructions, a set of directions. And instead, Jesus says, put the pencil down. I'm not gonna give you this complicated list of things you have to follow. So you have this fear and anxiety. You're always wondering, am I on the right path? Am I following it the right way? It's very simple. The way to get home is through me. The way to get home, the path as it were, is with me. And so you already know the way because you already know me. So for this journey, Jesus gives us this place. He gives us a path. And then lastly, he gives us the gift of his presence. He gives us the gift of his presence. The most important gift in this chapter by far that Jesus gives you if you're fearful and anxious. 
the most important gift that he gives you if you're discouraged or disconnected or apathetic, the most important gift he gives you in this chapter, if you're just trying to live faithfully for Jesus, but you feel inadequate and like you don't have the strength is the gift of his presence. He says to us in verse 16, I will ask the father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. And so he senses their main fear. The reason they're so anxious, the reason they're so afraid, the reason he has to say to them is don't be troubled is this. They're realizing we're about to be on our own. We're gonna be leaderless, shepherdless, helpless, and we're gonna have to figure this whole scenario out by ourselves. And so Jesus says, no, 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 you're not gonna be alone. I will come to you with my presence. But look what he calls the spirit who he says he will come, the spirit who will come to make our home in in, in us. Look what he says in verse 16 and 26. He says, Jesus, the Holy Spirit is our helper, our helper. If you have a Bible in front of you, you might have a different translation that says something like counselor or advocate. There's different ways to translate this word. It's a, it's a deep Greek word. It's paraclete, which you may have heard before. Two parts. Para means come alongside. Clete means to call out. So here's what he's saying the Holy Spirit is. The Holy Spirit is the one who comes alongside of you and calls out to you. That's how you can see helper, counselor, advocate. That's what the Holy Spirit is doing. Coming alongside of you, calling out to you. What is he calling out? Keep going. Verse 18. Jesus says, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. And so Jesus is sending the spirit to do this. Sensing our fear that we're alone. He's sending the spirit to call out to us. You are not a spiritual orphan. I'm gonna make my home in you. He actually says in John 16, it's better that I go away so I can send the spirit It's better. What do you mean it's better? Jesus being beside me is pretty stinking great. How could it possibly be better? And the point is this, the spirit comes and is with us wherever we go to call out to us alongside of us so that we don't live like spiritual orphans. Here's what, the reason I think the best translation of this word is like advocate or legal counselor, because I think what's happening is this. Jesus is saying that in your mind, and I think if you think about this for just a second, you can see how this happens. In your mind, so often there starts this trial almost. And you start to think and live or believe like a spiritual orphan, like you are alone, like you really do have to do life by yourself. Like you really do have to figure it all out on your own and that God is distant and he's not with you. And the job of the spirit is to come to you and say, stop living and thinking and believing like an orphan. God is in you. The father loves you. Jesus has not left you alone. And so here's what I want you to see. I want you to look at this chart for a second. Just a couple of ways this plays out, ways that we can live as a spiritual orphan and then what the spirit does when he calls out to us to remind us of the truth. First of all, the spiritual orphan feels alone. They lack vital daily intimacy with God. And the spirit calls out, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. He has promised to never leave you or forsake you. 
The spiritual orphan, the spiritual orphan lives on a succeed fail basis. They need to look good and be right. They're performance oriented and therefore they often feel condemned. I can tell you one of the ways this works out for me in like five minutes or whatever, I'll walk off this stage and I'll go sit right there and like the trial will start. How'd the sermon go? The guy in like the fifth row, he didn't pay attention like at all. What does that mean? Hypothetically. And you start to descend into these thoughts of like, what's my identity? What's my worth? What's my value? You put yourself on trial. Maybe you're not preaching regularly, but you do it with your parenting or with your marriage or with your friendships or with your job. We're always on trial in our own brains thinking, do I measure up? Do I have value? Do I have worth? And the spirit comes alongside of us like an expert witness and says, I'd like to bring some facts to the case. I'd like to speak on your behalf and remind you, Neil, of this. No matter how this sermon goes, no matter how your parenting or marriage or job is going, your worth and value don't fluctuate based on how you perform that day. Your worth and value were decided before the foundation of the world when God chose to love you and Jesus agreed to die for you, bringing you into the family of God. You are loved and accepted and valuable and worthwhile. Don't live on constant trial in your own mind about how did I perform this day? What do people think of me? Stop heaping condemnation on yourself when Jesus says to you, there's not an ounce of condemnation left for you. I've taken it all. That's how the spirit comes alongside us and calls out to us. A couple of other examples. Spiritual orphans feel discouraged and defeated. They lack spiritual power. They have no victory over sin in their life. The spirit calls out. The same uh, spirit who rose Jesus from the dead lives in you. Put to death the deeds of the body. The spiritual orphan, lastly, is relatively prayerless. Prayer is a last resort. They pray sometimes in public, seldom in private, and the Spirit calls out to the child of God. You are a child of God. Call out to your Father. And so here's the point. The Spirit's presence with you is to come as your advocate, to remind you that you're not an orphan. You're not alone. You have a God. You have a Savior. You have his presence in you right now. But lastly, as if that isn't enough, Don't miss what it says in verse 16. Jesus says, and I will ask the father and he will give you another paraclete, another advocate, another helper. John tells us who this is in 1 John 2. My little children, I'm writing these things to you that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate, same word, with the father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. So here's what Jesus is saying. I'm gonna send you this second advocate, this second defense counselor, this second witness to come alongside of you. But the first advocate, me, I haven't resigned my position. That Jesus right now is advocating before the throne of God for you, interceding on your behalf. And can I tell you how I used to think that played out? I used to think the the scene in the throne room of God was like this, like Jesus comes to God at the end of the day. He's like, hey, yeah, we got to run through the list of sins, you know, like, you know, the drill. It's like, Neil Skelton. You know, um, you know what he said he wasn't going to do again last week? 
Yeah, he did it again. And I know what you're thinking. Like, we're, we're on like years of this now. Like, when does this, I know, I know, I know. But listen, let's just give him another chance. I really think he's about to turn a corner. Let's just show him a little mercy. I used to think that's how the scene played out in the throne room of God. And then someone gave me this sermon from Charles Hodge that said this. No, Jesus as your advocate is more like a defense attorney. And if you've ever watched like a TV show with defense attorney, you are a defense attorney, I don't know. Defense attorneys don't show up in the courtroom and go to the judge and say, hey, can we just show my client a little mercy? Can we just give them a second chance? No, he says, good defense attorneys go to the judge and they say, according to the law, my client should go free. According to the law, they go free. And Jesus, as our advocate, says to the father, according to the law, he's not begging for mercy. He's demanding justice. He's saying, we both know the wages of sin is death. And we both know the rap sheet on Neil Skelton, but I paid for all of that. My life for his. And so he goes free. That's what's playing out as Jesus, as your advocate, as we sing all the time before the throne of God above. I have a what do you need to latch onto that will help you to not be fearful or anxious or discouraged? What do you need for the path ahead, for the week ahead? Jesus gives you a place that before you is a home in heaven that he's prepared for you. He gives you a path, which really isn't a path at all. It's himself as the way to heaven and your faith in him alone. And then he gives us his presence, that the spirit is with us, calling out to us. And we have a second advocate who in right now in heaven is interceding for us. Brothers and sisters, these are things we need for the journey. Hold on to them, believe them. Let's pray together. Father, what a great word we have in John 14. Thank you that you know our hearts that we feel across this room for various reasons, troubled, discouraged, anxious, fearful, inadequate. The journey ahead is daunting. And so these gifts from Jesus, oh, they're like a, they shock us back to life with hope that along the way, we don't have to be discouraged, but that we can look towards heaven, that Jesus, you're preparing a place for us, that this light and momentary affliction is not worth comparing to the glories that are to come. And that Jesus, you are the way, the truth, and the life. That the way we get to heaven is through faith in you, and so we can rest in your salvation. And Jesus, you give us your presence, the spirit living in us, that you, Jesus, say you come to us, pleading on our behalf, reminding us of the truth. Help us to latch on to these things and give us strength for the journey ahead. We pray it all in Christ's name. Amen.